we'll be talking to Simon Elliott about his new book, The Romans at War. Simon's published many other books on the Roman Empire, including Sea Eagles of Empire, The Classes Britannica and Battles for Britain, Empire State, How the Roman Military Built an Empire, Septimus Severus in Scotland, The Northern Campaigns of the First Hammer of the Scots, Roman Legionaries and Julius Caesar, Rome's Greatest Warlord. Simon has a Master's in War Studies from King's College London, as well as a Master's in Archaeology from University College London. Simon also has a PhD in Classics and Archaeology from the University of Kent, where he's also an Honorary Research Fellow. As well as all this, he's lectured widely on local history and archaeology, is co-director of the Roman Villa Excavation at Teston, and is trustee of both the Council for British Archaeology and the Museum of London Archaeology. A very busy man, so thank you for coming, up, uh, coming to talk to us today, Simon. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you so much for, uh, for, for having me on the, on the pod. Um, could you do my PR, please? <laughs> yes, of course. Hire me. <laughs> thank you for having me. No worries. So we ask each of our guests if they can summarise their book in 30 seconds. Could you please try and do that for us? Start the clock. So uh, my book is called Romans at War, and it's basically every single thing you ever needed to know about the Roman military with loads and loads and loads and loads of pretty pictures. That was like nine seconds. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. love it. We need loads of pretty pictures in books. Sometimes they can be a bit too word heavy. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we need more books with lovely, gorgeous pictures, which, as you say, this book definitely doesn't lack. I'll tell you what, it makes a huge difference, you know, because I mean, I, I, one of the things I do, because I'm an established author, various publishers come to me and ask me to proofread books for them. And okay. if you get a book, which is, so basically it's not, uh, it can either be the text or it could be the full book and the paid proofs. If it's got no images, it makes a huge difference. So the, the first thing for images is a map. You always need maps in there so people yes. have got a point of reference. Yeah. No matter how good you are with words, um, um, you, you, a, a map really helps a reader access whatever you're writing. Yes, and so I definitely agree with that. Tables. So if I'm, if I'm talking about the Roman military, over the period of the Roman Republican Empire, there's probably 60 legions, about 30 at any one time. And in the books, I'm referencing them and they've all got different names and different numbers and stuff. If you have a table that can list them as an example, then again, it makes it much easier for the reader. And then finally, images, pictures, whatever, it makes such, such a difference. The one thing over and above everything else I think that makes such a difference is if you have bespoke colour plates as well. So if mm -hmm. I'm writing about Roman soldiers, if I can commission an artist, which I was able to do for Romans at War, to, to draw Amazing. new bespoke full colour plates, they're fantastic and, and the, the readers love it. Yeah. Well, it does make it so much easier to be able to visualise it. As you say, there was so many, there was so much movement as well. So it makes it easier to, to kind of see that. Well, it's, well, one of the things I do over and above the, the writing as well, I do a bit of telework, but I also guide lecture in the Mediterranean and actually around Roman Britain for, for tour companies. One of them is called Andante Travels. And um, that takes it to the next level. So not only then are you showing people in your written work, you're not only you're telling them, in the written work not only are you showing them in the written work you're also then taking them to the physical place yeah touch things and see things and hear things that that really is the absolute ultimate piece you can bring Absolutely. it to life in a completely yeah. different way and i think it helps people to actually visualize what you're trying to communicate in the books and then when you take them to the places they're like oh this is it it's real it's not it's not fiction it's not just something in a book and then guess what? They buy the book. <laughs> exactly. And here we are talking about it today. <laughs> Everyone's a winner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
Well, um, so you mentioned in your first bit of the book, your kind of the aim of the book was to tell the story of the Roman Empire for a new generation, which I think is a really lovely um, kind of idea for a book. Can you tell us a bit more about how it came about? If you, if you think about even the way you were educated history at school, certainly I was educated at school, so I'm 55. <clears throat> so I was at school in the late 1970s and 1980s. I went to my first university in, in the 1980s. When I was taught uh, history through a certain way of uh, viewing the world, so, so uh, my education was through the prism of um, British history in the 19th and 20th century. So even if you're talking about the Romans, you're still looking through that prism. Yeah. Uh, now things have changed a little today. I dare say it's very different the way you were taught history. However, <laughs> I work in a school now, and they have changed it. It is really interesting how they do it, and they do incorporate. They do look at. I'll definitely be taking this book in to show the kids. Oh, um, fantastic! <laughs> because so yeah, they do start from the Roman period and they go onwards, and they're looking at it um, from a much more, I'd say, global perspective as well. Brilliant. Oh, great! Mm. That's brilliant. Well, the, 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 the key takeout I would give you is. What I try and do with all my books, but this is a, because this book covers such a vast chronology, it's from um, the beginning of the Roman Republic in 509 BC all the way through to, through, through to the Empire in the West collapsing in 8476. So it's a huge period of time. Mm. What, I, what I'm trying to do is take it out of the context of the modern world mm. and see it in its own right. Yeah. So as it was. One, one of the things I always talk about when I'm doing my public speaking is when you think about people to the past whoever they are, whether it's 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, people of the past are like us, but they're different. So there are different aspects uh, to the experience of someone living, for example, in the Roman world. Mm. One of them, for example, is their attitude to casual violence, which is very different to ours, certainly, in most parts of the world today. And that's only one example. Um, so, so trying to take uh, the narrative away from the way we see the world today really really helps and that's one of my aims in the book actually yeah one of the things I'm always trying to get across to the kids at school is that ancient people weren't stupid there seems to be like this idea that oh they just didn't know enough back then mm. so that's why it's brilliant when you look at like the Romans at war and you see the, the innovation and exactly like you say how they saw things at the time the real it's contemporary just, view of it it's fascinating I have to tell you that's such an amazing point that is an amazing point to make actually uh, if you think you think about the sine curve of cultural evolution in our lifetime, which is going like this, okay? Yeah. So you think what people who are going to be living in 50 years' time think of us. I can remember buying my first mobile phone, which was probably 1996, uh, 97, and it was a brick. <laughs> With a big antenna. <laughs> exactly, but I look, I look back at myself then when I got my first mobile phone, uh, and I think, God, what a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a primitive phone that was. As yeah. it were. But yet, I can remember being so proud to have it phoning my mum, yeah. the first thing I did, to say, look what I've got, I'm so clever. So I think what people <laughs> in 50 years' time will think of us. Now, that is exactly the same as us thinking back to any peoples of the past. If you were living uh, in the Roman Empire in Britain in the second century, towards the end of the second century, when the Roman Empire here, uh, so it's the later Principate Empire, you'd think you were the bee's knees. Yeah. You, know, you think you've got yeah, exactly. it made, providing you weren't fighting on the northern border. Um, so, so your point is so well made. That's brilliant. Thanks. Well, well, you know, I like to think that I'm teaching the kids something. <laughs> yeah. You are. Now, Simon, you obviously you've mentioned that your book is split into different elements of the Roman Empire. So you've got one on the Republican uh, military. The and how do I say this, Simon? Is it the Principate military? I, I, I always used oh. to call it the Principate until I actually got went went to a lecture by someone cleverer than me, and he said Principate. 
Print it, okay. I was saying it wrong. <laughs> so I spent, well, there we I spent go. A lifetime, I spent a lifetime <laughs> without saying it wrong. So, so it's the well, Prinky Pate. Uh, the Prinky, okay, so there we go. So the Prinky Pate military and the Dominate military. Now, yep. obviously, for some of our listeners, they might not be so hot on Roman military history. Can you give us a bit of an overview on each of these phrases of what they mean? And if there are any like hallmarks for each phase of this kind of Roman Empire? Absolutely. So basically, you've got... The three key phases, exactly as you described it, you've got the Republic, you've got the Principate Empire and the Dominate Empire. So the Republic is the period from 509 BC when Tarquin the Proud, the last Roman king, who was an Etrusco-Roman king, was overthrown by the aristocracy in Rome because they didn't like having a king. And that initiated the Roman Republic. And then that lasted all the way through to 27 BC when Octavian was the last man standing at the end of the last round of Republican civil wars and the Senate acknowledged him as being the emperor. So as the imperator, as they described it. So that is the beginning of the Roman Empire. And that's called the Principate Empire. And it goes from there until AD 284. I'll go to 284 in a minute. The Principate Empire from 27 BC to 284 is called that because the emperor was styled the Principus, the first among equals. Now, obviously, it's a conceit because he's not the first among yeah. equals, is he? He's a dictator. Yeah. So he's got, he's got no equals whatsoever. There's no equal to a Roman emperor. But it's a conceit which allows the Roman Empire to pretend that it's still got the virtues of the Republic. It's very, very yeah. Roman, actually. And, you know, they, they, they get away with it until they hit something which begins in AD 235 with the assassination of Alexander Severus called the crisis of the third century, which is this massive economic shock which hits the Roman Empire just before the end of the Principate. It lasts from 235 until Diocletian becomes the emperor in 284. And this is a period, uh, the, the, the crisis, when you have the very first symmetrical threat, so an equivalent threat to the Romans themselves, with the arrival of the Sassanid Persians in the east. This is the time when you get the first big, deep incursions of Goths and Germans over the Danube and the Rhine. It's a time when you get multiple usurpations, so lots of people taking the emperorship themselves, not lasting very long usually, but in some years you get turnovers of two, three or four emperors. And overall, the whole thing is wrapped around something called, very topically with the age in which we live, the Plague of Cyprian, which was a plague which lasted 20 years, which significantly... Oh, wow depopulated parts oh, God, of the don't say that. <laughs> well, it got, it got, it's, it's interesting, the plague with Cyprian, um, when, Marcus Aure, uh, when Marcus Aurelius, to put these plagues into context, when Marcus Aurelius earlier in the second century was campaigning on the Danube, he had to recruit gladiators and German prisoners into the ranks of the legionaries to bolster his army because the mm. plague diminished the numbers so much. So if we jump forward to the crisis of the third century, the same kind of thing was happening. So in this crisis, you wrap it all together, you get a massive economic crash, just like the one we had at the beginning of uh, yeah. March, April this year, because mm -hmm. uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and, and this was such a shock to the Principate Empire that it almost collapsed. It almost finished the empire off. Wow. So Diocletian comes in as being a great reforming emperor, and he's one of the truly great emperors. And he realised to drag the empire kicking and screaming, the Principate Empire, Quicking and kicking and screaming out of this huge shock, he had to reform it totally. So he turned it into something very different. He got rid of the conceit that the emperor was the first among equals. He got rid of the use of the term principus and he replaced it with the term dominus, which is where the dominate empire comes from. Mm. Dominus is oh, an okay. Eastern potentate. So no longer is there a pretense that the Roman Empire is just one of the lads and ladies. It's not. <laughs> Roman Empire, the, the Roman Empire from the time of Diocletian is effectively a godlike figure. Yeah. And you at your peril. 
and then to manage the empire in the dominate phase, again realizing that he couldn't do it in the same way it happened previously, such was the damage of the crisis. He put a he did loads of different things, but one of the things is he put in a layer of imperial administration in to separate him away from the rest of the empire effectively. So for the first time, the Romans had what we will recognize today as a civil service. So you have the Republic, which is the age of Julius Caesar as an example. You have the Principate Empire, which is the age of the likes of Trajan and Hadrian and Septimius Severus. And then you have the Dominate Empire, which is the age of the likes of Diocletian and Constantine and Theodosius. Wow, that makes so much more wow. sense than, than anything yeah. ever taught. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so interesting. They felt the need, they, they knew that it, they weren't an equal, that it wasn't just like you described it, one of the lads in the empire, that they were like, no, I'm, I'm dominating. So I'm going to kind of rename this as something that reflects that I am the overall leader in a way. I find that a really interesting transition of the empire. Which was a shock, an absolute shock. If you think about it, before um, there was a clear separation between the imperial household and structure on the Palatine Hill, for example, in Imperial Rome. Mm-hmm. But, but nevertheless, they would have to go along with this conceit in the Principate, whereas in the Dominate, they just couldn't. They, 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 one, of the, one of the things you find with an, an, an Eastern um, potentate is that they have things like the Prokinesis, where, where if you're in the Imperial presence, you have to bow down or lie on the ground. Well, to a, to a Roman noble or warrior in the Principate phase, that was unthinkable. In the dominate phase it was normal and the bit that most people don't realize is this bit in the middle the crisis of the third century at the end of the principate yeah they don't realize the shock that was to the system again it goes back to one of the very first things we were talking about people in the past and their experience of life we, we clearly are, are struggling at the moment and will come out of it happily i would hope <laughs> because of the pandemic that we're in uh, nevertheless peoples of the past equally suffered and we can look at their experiences and the crisis of the third century to see how dramatic effect that had on the Roman Empire. Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, this is, I'm so excited to talk about this because it has actually made me so excited when I opened the package of this book that you kindly um, sent over to Liv and I. The aesthetic of it, it's absolutely stunning. The pages is, are just filled with the most beautiful images. There's maps and tables and it makes the information so digestible and I couldn't recommend it enough. Did you take the photographs yourself? Um, well, one of the great things about this book was that so the publisher actually had a separate budget for imagery. Yeah. So wow. normally with my books, what I try and do is I try and use all my own images and all my own maps, etc. I've got friends who could, very good graphic designers who could do maps for me. I've got, uh, and I was also, I travel the Roman world um, and everywhere I go, I take photographs just with this actually, just from my phone. <laughs> so oh, basically, wow. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I say, what camera do you have? <laughs> you want to be a one of your, so the front yeah, camera. Really? Like, come on, these are brilliant. Yeah. Can you put these on your phone? On this. Wow. No, look at this in the Roman Forum. It's just, so, I'm from holding the book up. Yeah. <laughs> so the key takeout, actually, for any would be authors is firstly, if you want to take your own pictures, just when you buy a camera, when you buy a phone, make sure it's got a very, very good high definition camera. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so any picture in that book that doesn't have um, a credit, I took. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's just brilliant. And, and also, I asked, I, out there as well. And also tap your friends up to go and take photographs when they go around the world as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. Them. Hang a message in the group. Guys, if anyone's going uh, here. <laughs> and they get a free book. So everyone's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> beautiful. <laughs> That's brilliant. 
and also what you tend to find, I used to be a journalist and then my, for my day job, I, I run a small PR agency just to pay the mortgage. I mean, is there anything you haven't done? Honestly, you do so much. <laughs> I, 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 only do the, I only do the day job, although I enjoy the day job, but principally I do it because it enables me to, to follow my passion writing uh, history books as well. And um, so therefore I've got an eye for a good picture. I've got an eye for a good news story and an eye for a good picture. So every time I see something, I just go. And then one of the things I do as well, this is an interesting marketing tip for your viewers as well, is... In, in the past, what a publisher would ask you to do is to build a, a database of people's email addresses who, who sort of like followed you, etc., and, and bought your books. But in the age in which we live, you don't need to do that. You do it through social media, yeah. using social media very responsibly, not giving an opinion. If you want to sell your book, if you just talk about, in my, on my account, I just talk about my books in history. Mm. Um, one of the things I actually started doing at the beginning of the lockdown in the UK was I started posting, to your point actually, about the lovely pictures. I've just posted a nice picture every day from my travels. And I'm not kidding, no matter how well my books have sold, no matter how much telly I've done, no matter how many public appearances I've done, no matter how many times I've gone abroad and lectured and guide lectured for, around the Mediterranean, the thing that's boosted my following on Twitter is that, posting yeah. nice pictures, to brighten up people's days yeah that's what it is isn't it and especially in the main lockdown when people were you know people yeah. were just like bamboozled about what was going on in the world and when you're I missing mean, travel is... as well i mean it's, yeah. gonna, it's gonna make them kind of jealous i guess and miss it and maybe a little bit like oh i wish i could get there but still it's such a highlight when these lovely pictures come up on your and uh, i'll tell you how it adds value as well i promise i'll come back to your question i promise <laughs> i was just gonna say what's your twitter just so then <laughs> people who are listening can follow you at simon elliott 20 there we go that's it. At Simon Elliott 20. Thank you so much. That's <laughs> everyone's a winner. Shameless plug. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's a winner. If you were to go, this again is added value for your listeners if they want to know how to market their research and you guys as well mm. with your website. If you do a very regular post on Twitter, it really drives up your ranking on Google. So if you were to type in my name, Simon Elliott, 2002 T's on Google now, the first hit you would get of anyone with my name in the world is me wow. which is my website's the first one and then after yeah, that you look scroll down and what you get is the twitter twitter post i've done so it absolutely massively drives up your ranking on google oh, that's that's a, that's a hot professional very good point well thank you for that simon right. that's gonna be my weekend i'm gonna be planning out yeah, my for the next month <laughs> but, but, but but there's a discipline to it because you've got to do it regularly so <laughs> I, was say, I don't know if me posting the odd selfie is going to get me as many uh, followers as your pictures <laughs> your travel pics but i'm gonna go back through I'll my ones from rome <laughs> <laughs> start posting all my italy photos from last month yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Italy. you beat me i was due to do i was, I was due to do a week guide lecturing for andante travel and i missed out by three days because of the oh, lockdown in campaign no. oh, well i was lucky to go in september i went for a week and did like rome naples and then the Amalfi coast that that's, where, that's, where I, that's where i was doing my tour yeah oh well next time i'm out there i'm gonna come annoy you and come on one of your tours Simon, because <laughs> that's right up my street <laughs> And, and again, it's interesting, um, there's a good point to make there as well about when you do go on your foreign holidays, if you want to do an archaeological or historical event, don't just go to one place, go to a region, because where you went, the Roman Bay of Naples, that's an amazing place to go, because oh you can God. start all the way from Misenum on the northwestern coast and go all the way around the bay, which, by the way, is the main crater of the original volcano. So mm. Vesuvius is a side vent. The oh. main volcano is the actual Bay of Naples. And if you go up to the top of what? Vesuvius, one of the tricks I do guide lecturing, yeah. I ask my guests to look into the, the caldera of the existing Vesuvius when you're on uh -huh. the top. Then I say, let's turn round. So we all turn round. You look at the Bay of Naples. Yeah. You see the far corner of Misenum, 
Mm -hmm. Go all the way around past Naples, past Herculaneum, past Pompeii, all the way around to Capri. Yeah. The actual original volcano caldera, the actual Bay of Naples. Oh my god, wow. I can see that in my head now. I'm like, we went to hold that when we were out there. <laughs> Come on one of my holidays. <laughs> I will. Don't trust me, I will. <laughs> Simon, so, mean, obviously, as we've just been talking about, you've travelled so far to the most amazing places that I'm extremely jealous by. Um, to do all of this research and obviously what really are some of your good travel stories because I bet you've got some and you know oh, you've got your, your favorite place to visit as well I've got a brilliant one well I, well that's that's well, that, that the, the, there are two two points there so that my favorite place to visit that is a very difficult one actually uh, I could always go back to Rome because I can always find something new in yeah. Rome okay you're always going to find a new fact when you go back there. Outside of the classical world, I always love go, I love going to the States and I love going to, a lot of people like going to New York. I love going to Washington DC actually again because I can always find something new to discover there as well. Yeah, uh, oh, that's lovely. In terms of travel stories though, I, I give you a classic and this is a, a, what I'll do at the end of the, 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 the interview, I'll send you a picture of it. This is my Indiana Jones moment. <laughs> oh yes it's brilliant <laughs> i think i know where you're going with this so we go to the sorrento peninsula back to where you're on holiday we go to the sorrento peninsula and the hotel that we often stay at when we're telling with andante travels is right on top of one of the mountains so it's not on the coast it's an amazing place and you can see all the way down the bay of salerno one side and the bay of naples the other and uh, the last time i was there which was about a year and a half ago i was chatting to the hotel manager at the end of the day and he had to mention that the beginning of the aqua augusta was in the valley at the very bottom of the mountain so the aqua augusta is the ring main for all of the aqueducts in the bay of naples so if you were to take an arc going all the way around the bay of naples up to misenum so go through pompeii herculaneum etc piazzoli uh, that then supplies all the aqueducts so it's like a super aqueduct and the beginning of it was at the bottom of this valley so i said would you show us how to get there tomorrow when we get back and so i asked for any volunteers who were feeling hardy enough at the end of the day is guide lecture have been guide lectured about eight of us sort of went down to try and find it and the manager was going to take us down there but he was ill so he just gave me directions and i thought oh, this is easy <laughs> oh dear turns out it's about as off-road as you can get it was on 45 50 60 degree mountain mountain um, pathway oh. which were just gravel uh because there were mountain pathways they got water flowing down them as well there was no um safety railings or anything like that so we were sort of like my stomach is like turning at the thought of that oh my god I mean, we nearly bottled it. well i nearly bottled it i mean we got near the bottom we had to cross two mountain streams on effectively large pebbles so so you can forget stepping stones they were large pebbles oh, no. and the only reason that I, we, and we got near the bottom and i thought i can't do this because this is getting a bit dangerous and this lunatic came past us on a mountain bike at full speed and stopped across a stream but i just asked him uh, in, in my Italian where, where it was and uh, he said yeah it's just around the corner and we went round and it was an absolutely eureka moment because it was there it's about five layers of these beautiful bourgeois archers which is what the oh, Roman oh, wow. yeah. arena's from and it was there we absolutely oh found God, it wow. yeah. creepers and things literally like being in Indiana Jones yeah you We're stumbled on it like that's that. just incredible I'll send you a picture <laughs> yes <laughs> do <laughs> I have these like incredible visions of a guy like just Skidding down the, on a mountain bike, being like, "You found it. You're in the right place." <laughs> it's so Italian at the same yeah. time. That's so Italian. I wish it was yeah. a moment. on the Vespa. I know. <laughs> Honestly, hilarious. But coming back to the Romans, are there 
any popular myths in the field that you would like to bust? You've got the platform. Now, this could be quite a tricky question here, given that every origins of the Roman Empire are shrouded in myth. Right. The platform is yours. Easy peasy. Right. The Romans, good. The, Romans, <laughs> the Romans were good for two things. The, the two things which stood out more than anything else were the Romans. The second one will answer your question. So the first one is grit. So they always came back from adversity. If you think about the Second Punic War, the army's been annihilated at Cana, one of the largest losses of life in an ancient world battle. The Romans still came back and won the Second Punic War. And in the Third Punic War, they flattened Carthage and covered it in salt. So it couldn't be rebuilt. When it was rebuilt, it was they who rebuilt it. So the Romans never gave up. When they were fighting the wars against the Hellenistic kingdoms, so the successor kingdoms of Alexander the Great, um, the, 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 the Hellenistic kingdoms thought they were fighting sort of a gentleman's war where if they were going to lose to the Romans, they'd just lift up their pikes and spears and surrender. And the Romans would say, not, not a problem. You go home and we'll have a nice peace. Actually, the Romans <laughs> carried on killing them. <laughs> and oh, remember, the Romans saw the gladius, that's everyone, the, the famous saw the gladius hispaniensa. This isn't your answer to the question, by the way, it's added <laughs> Gladius which was about that big, so it's a fairly short sword, it's a stabbing sword, but it had no runnels in it, so it had no grooves, which a normal sword has, which allows blood to flow out of a wound and air to flow in, which means the sword can be withdrawn easily, yeah. which means to withdraw a gladius from a wounded enemy, you have to give it a massive twist oh. and yank it out, which oh. takes a chunk of your <laughs> body out with it leaves a massive gaping wound. So it's actually a psychological weapon. It's oh. there to terrify an opponent, okay? Yeah, I'm so, terrified. So yeah. <laughs> I wish the viewers could see live space with, with absolutely squirming throughout that. With your, khaki <laughs> theme, with your khaki theme, it's the same as a Stuka in the Second World War and it's screaming sort of siren when it's diving. Yeah. To yeah. So, so, so that's Roman grit, but they also had something else which does answer your question directly, which most people won't know. The Romans nicked everything. So <laughs> every single thing that you can think of that was crucial to the Romans, they pinched from somebody else. Wow. And they were absolutely um, un 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 unworried about it. They, they just nicked everybody's intellectual property. Do you think about the Colosseum? <laughs> not even just physical things, intellectual property as well. They stole everything. Everything. They nicked everything. If you think about the Colosseum in, in, in Rome at the bottom of the Forum Romanum, the mm -hmm. Flavian Amphitheatre, with its uh, rows and rows of bourgeois arches, well, that's not Roman at all. They're nicked from the Greeks. If you look at the classic Principate Legionary, you can see pictures in Romans at wall. The, the, the image that most people associate with the Roman Legionary. The Roman, this, this Roman legionary is wearing a helmet, a big helmet, very high technology. It's called a Gallic helmet. That's because it's nicked from the Gauls originally. Um, if he's a Caesarian legionary, he's wearing chain mail. The chain mail is also nicked from the Gauls. Yeah. If he's a later legionary, we're wearing the banded iron armor, the Lorica segmentata. That's probably gladiator armor, and that's nicked originally from the Etruscans. If he's uh, wearing his gladius hispaniensa, the clues in the name, it's Spanish. Mm. If he's got his pillum javelins, they're Spanish. His scutum shield, that's Samnite as well. Nothing about this Roman soldier is Roman at all. They're nicked from everybody else. But having nicked them, they went and then annihilated their opponent. That even just adds insult to injury, doesn't it? Very practical. Yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything you could say was originally Roman? The roads? Please, it's got to be the road. <laughs> I tell you what you can hear. You can hear. You can hear. I Hector can hear Hector. Hector. Hey, Hector, Hector, who is he? Who is he? There we go. Oh, Hector. This, this is the archaeological dog. Oh, Hector. You are gorgeous. <laughs> so the, Hector, the archaeological dog, who needs his walk a bit later. Head to our Twitter account for pictures of Hector. Exclusive content. <laughs> 
Roman roads are real. The whole gig is real. I'll tell you something yeah. else, actually, as well. I've just finished writing a book for um, Pen and Sword called Roman Conquest Britannia, part of a series about how the Romans conquered each province. And this one's about Britannia because I'm a, a Roman Britain expert. Um, the Romans took a long time to conquer Britain. So Caesar conquered Gaul in eight years, but it took the Romans a long time to conquer up to, say, the line of later Hadrian's Wall. It took 40-odd years. And they never really conquered the far north. They could try and claim they did twice, but they didn't really. So, so um, the whole story of early Roman Britain is one of these never-ending campaigns of conquest, which means that most of the A road network before the motorways are actually originally Roman roads, enabling this conquest. And then when yeah. the territory is conquered, to be, for it to be managed. So the A2 in Kent and, uh, is... Um, Watling Street and then Watling Street continues into the Midlands and the Welsh Marshes as the A5. The A1's Ermine Street which goes up to York through Lincoln both of which were Roman and then continues as Deer Street towards the Scottish borders but even more importantly because of that as the Romans were doing this sort of like campaign of conquest scouring a bit stopping scouring a bit stopping as they had the stop lines they built forts and those forts later became the main cities of modern Britain. So if I go through a list of cities of modern Britain that were originally forts and fortresses by the Romans, uh, you've got Exeter, you've got Gloucester, you've got Cardiff, you've got Chester, you've got Leicester, you've got Manchester, you've got Lincoln, you've got York, you've got Newcastle, you've got Carlisle. They're all Roman forts originally. And interesting, they're all on rivers as well. Yeah. so that the Romans could yeah. actually access Absolutely. the coast to supply them. That just blows my mind. Every single time I hear about how much of the, the infrastructure of the country and the, the, how much the Romans did for us, that is, honestly, I, I can't comprehend yeah. it. It's insane. The book I'm writing at the moment is called Legacy of Rome for, uh, for the History Press. Will you come back on here to talk to us about that? Well, it's looking at this legacy by province, well, chunk of empire by chunk of empire. So it sets out that story exactly in terms of Roman Britain. It also looks at how the continent is different uh, today in some ways for example the catholic church latin languages etc and law codes based on roman law because of the way that the romans left the continent which was different to the way they left britain so on the continent you tended to have the germans and goths coming in just replacing the roman elites but the mm. rest stayed the same there's a direct thread from that all the way through to today oh wow yeah. Oh, Simon, you are so Love welcome it. back to talk about any of your yeah. books that <laughs> you've yeah, got coming definitely. out. So it does something I always I'm always keen to hear more about one particular Roman and that is Julius Caesar of course you've written a book on him as well um, he was a formidable warrior and a leader but I'm keen to know what you specifically think are the key takeaways about Julius Caesar that you think our listeners should should know about him what's your kind of favorite fact about him he was always broke <laughs> <laughs> why <laughs> yeah what, what was he spending his money on <laughs> so he, he, he was from the senatorial class a patrician so he's at the very top of Roman society but he wasn't from a particularly rich family in a particularly rich tribe. So, so although his father, when he died, was the uh, governor of a Roman province, they weren't amazingly wealthy. And actually mm. his father, when he died, by the way, he died, his father died bending down to tie a shoelace, which is a bit unfortunate. What? Uh, and, <laughs> How, sorry, well, I, I'm going to need a bit more context for that. <laughs> yeah. Because I need to be aware when I tie my shoe. <laughs> yeah. like, what are the dangers? <laughs> a very heavy shoe. <laughs> thought he had a heart condition, he had a heart attack, that's what people think. And he was in the provincial capital of Asia in Pergamon. So, so that should have set the family up for life in terms of wealth, but his father died. So they, they didn't have the wealth that they were expecting to have. And from that point, Caesar was always playing catch-up in terms of wealth compared to um, his, his, his um, colleagues uh, and anybody who was trying to sort of uh, outdo him. 
and he made up for it by this amazing sense of destiny. I think he really did have this sense of destiny from a very early age. He thought he was going to be a great man. And, mm. and so his career is one of pursuing this vision of personal greatness while at the same time trying to make some money. And you can see this writ large when he becomes a senior politician, ultimately when he's in his conquest of Gaul, because the two positions you would have in Rome where you weren't liable to be sued by your rivals, which is very common, by the way, for a Roman senior patrician. The two things you're scored in are the law and fighting, being a general, because you're always going to be fighting and you're always going to get sued by rivals. The two positions which mean you're exempt from being sued, you're free, are if you're a governor of a province or if you're a consul. So firstly, he strives very hard to become a consul, so his creditors can't chase him down for the money he owes them. And then once he's the governor in Gaul, he won't let it go, which ultimately causes, of course, the friction, which leads yeah. to crossing the Rubicon, etc., setting him on the, on the path to becoming the Caesar that we know. The point I would make, which, which uh, I, I would argue is a new take on him in my book, Julius Caesar, Rome's Greatest Warlord, is in the title, is the fact that he, 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 he was a warlord. Yeah. So I think in the later Roman Republic, from the time of the great reforming sometimes consul Marius, this is at the end of the second, beginning of the first century BC. Marius reforms the Roman legions. Stick with the logic train because it, it really does work, trust me. Marius is brought in to try and drag the Romans out of another crisis at the end of the second century, which is the Cimbrian Wars. So the Romans find themselves fighting the German Cimbrians and being annihilated time and again. Again, this is the Romans. Don't always win, but they keep coming back. And so Marius, as an example of this coming back, completely reforms the Roman legions. And he, he gets rid of the manipular system and he replaces it with the, the centuries that we know of from the classic legions, which become Caesar's legions and become the Principate Empire legions, the legions that we know and love. Now, the, this radical change works on a number of levels. The first thing is that he gets rid of all the, the supply chain, the baggage train uh, that the legions required. And now all the specialist troops to actually enable the legions to function in the field are within the legion. So every legionary is a trained engineer anyway, but now of these 6,000 legionaries in a legion, 1,200 are also specialists. So they're sword cutlers, they're masons, they're, they're, they're uh, tile makers, they're uh, carpenters. So they don't even need to take siege artillery with them because they can make it on campaign. Yeah, I was going to say that, that's so, that's, that's such good, like they're the advanced planning. It? Yeah, so it's such organisation to think will actually take the people along that can build these things for us along mm. the way. Like there's such... Technology innovation, isn't it? And then even more so, uh, what what um, it enables the the, uh, the the political leaders to do is it enables them to because these legions are effectively independent forces now they don't they have no links into supply chains or bases. It means they can be recruited. So providing a, a, a leader has got the money, so Caesar borrowing money as yes. an example from moneylenders, they can recruit new legions. They can then put the commanders and the officers in the new legion they recruited, they can, they can create those from the experienced warriors in the original legion. So this legion new one becomes very, very faithful to a given leader. Yeah. And, and the crucial thing he does is he removes the property qualification for a Roman citizen to become a legionary. So the poor in society can sign up and oh, therefore wow. they're very dependent on the salary they're paid. So the legions become not only independent in the way they operate, but also incredibly loyal to the person paying them. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love thinking about like, stock, like motivations of soldiers to join 
to join the mm. armies? Why, why would they stay? Why would they fight? Why would they go? Why would they do that? <laughs> Sets them up for life. If you're getting paid yeah. in Roman legionary, you've got a middle-class salary. If you, yeah. if you were in the suburra in, in Rome, uh, living in low-class housing, living living day-to-day, eating scraps, suddenly you've been paid a middle-class salary yeah. with the prospects of being, being set up for life when you retire, which at that, that time was only four, five, six years as a legionary. Why not? Yeah, uh, exactly. We do. Augustus had a huge problem that he inherited 60 legions uh, and also, this is at the end of the civil wars, and or Octavian later Augustus, he inherited 60 legions and then he had to find a way of paying for them to retire. If you've all been promised retirees. Like, oh great, yeah. we've got all these men, then later it's like, oh crap, now I've got to pay them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and go back to Caesar's time, just, just a little earlier. So Caesar recruits all these legions, the ones he conquered Gaul with eight, nine, ten legions, the legions yeah. he defeated Pompey with, the legions he defeated the the Optimati, so his opponents with and ends up with him becoming the dictator. Caesar bolted them together like Lego bricks. He recruited more legions than any other Roman leader, even in the Principate Empire, and he bolted them together like Lego bricks. Um, they were very loyal to him, and it meant that effectively he was an independent warlord. So clearly, crossing the Rubicon, he's saying, yeah. I can operate independently of the Roman state in the form of the Senate, so I can do what I want. So if you want to challenge me, fine. And it's almost an arrogant attitude which scares his opponent like Pompey to death. Yeah. In Rome, had more legionaries and legions than Caesar then, but still bottlenecks. Wow. Just phenomenal. I love this. Yeah, you can see why everyone was absolutely really terrified of him, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> the only problem you've got is stopping me talking. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Never. Don't talk away. We love it. We like, we like it. We like it. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to move on. This is kind of like our fun round section now, because we kind of like to think we talk about the, you know, your work and everything, but we also do like to know about the author as well and, you know, the personalization stuff to it. So can you tell us, tell us and tell everyone else really what got you into history? Uh, ever since I can remember, I've had a passion for history all the way back to being a, being a very small child. So I guess it must be my parents yeah. having books around the house with history as well. My mum was a teacher and oh. I can remember as a very young kid, um, this is again showing my age, but I can remember my, my dad coming home from work with lots of computer printout paper when I was four or five, and me just getting a handful of crayons and drawing a giant Roman chariot. So oh. the very earliest memory I've got to do with the Romans, and here I am today. Yeah, um, with your books and books and books. Amazing. Oh, I reckon you were a Roman in a previous life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> hey. <you. laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm now very wary that with this next section, we've stolen it actually from another podcast. We're just like the Romans who steal their stuff from everyone. Yeah. <laughs> we have nicked this next segment from another podcast called The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. <laughs> and what I'm going to do now is I'll ask you um, just four questions and I want you to give your first immediate answer. Just jump straight in. Whoever the first person that pops into your head. Yeah. Sound okay? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> all right. First up, favourite historical figure in all of history? Alexander the Great. Amazing. Why? Well... Another book I've got, this is, this is a not long-winded answer, to be very quick. Another book I've got coming out um, in the sequence is called Alexander the Great versus Julius Caesar, who was the greatest ah, leader, yeah. in, leader in, uh, greatest military leader in the, uh, the ancient world. Uh, and before I started my book on Caesar, I would have said Alexander the Great. He's always been an absolute passion of mine. My oh. son's called Alexander. Oh. Uh, whether, whether it's his good side, whether it hits his dark side, whether it, you view his <laughs> legacy as being positive, whether you view his legacy as being negative, uh, yeah. just one of the most astonishing figures in world history. If you were to ask most people in the world to choose a figure from world history, no matter where in the world they were, actually, he's one of the people that will most commonly come, come out. 
Oh, wow. Amazing. Love Sorry, that. flip that question on its head then. Who's your least favourite figure of all time? That's a really tough question, actually. That's, <laughs> that's a brilliant question, by the way. But you're right. It's the, the Emperor, right, so very few people say this. The Emperor Domitian. Because oh, the Emperor okay. Domitian is the person, who is, is the Emperor who, after Agricola had conquered the far north of Britain, which would have um, created an entire single province of Britain, lost interest in the province because he was that kind of guy, allowed the Romans to withdraw down to the line. So from that point on was the story of Roman Britain is not one of a single homogenous province. It's one of a troubled province where in the yeah. north you have to have a very large military presence, probably 12% of the entire Roman military in an area in the province that's only about 4% of the geographical area to maintain this unconquered northern border. So I think if, you're, if I was to look yeah. at a complete idiot in, military, <laughs> in, in, in world history, Domitian's uh, one of the people I would say is a complete idiot. He takes the crown idiot. there. And Fair enough. And often I'm asking yeah. about who are the mad and bad Roman emperors. So I always <laughs> go for Nero is mad. Yeah. Caracalla, who's Septimius Severus' eldest son, is bad. Yeah. And then Commodus, so who's played by Whacking Phoenix in uh, Gladiator, yeah. is mad. Mm -hmm. Love him. I'm bad. <laughs> oh, double whammy. Yeah. <laughs> now, now I'm really excited to hear your answer to this next question because this is my favourite one. If you were to go on a road trip with three people from history, who would be in your car? Alex, I've, I've read the questions, by the way. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not as clever as I sound. I'm, 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 I'm great. Don't give it away. <laughs> Caesar, and I'd sit them together on the back seat so they'd fight. <laughs> uh, then I'd, and then I choose one of my favourite emperors. So my favourite emperor is Septimius Severus, who was a great warrior emperor, the last emperor to try and conquer the far north, yeah. uh, just because he has an amazing story arc. So if I, if I, if I would say to any of your viewers, if they want to look into a Roman emperor, they won't know very well. Check out Septimius Severus. Also, incidentally, he is also the only North African emperor. Um, interestingly, if you were to look at his background. He was very proud of his African heritage as well. So in the world in which we live today, he's a very interesting figure to look at. Oh, oh. fantastic. Oh, yeah, please everyone get Yeah, have a look into it. Mm. And last of all, what has been the highlight of your career so far? What's been the best moment? Uh, right, so again, it's a fantastic question. Um, I would say for Seagulls of Empire, right, I've got it. And it, it involves a, it involves a B&Q car park. <laughs> So for my first book, Seagulls of Empire, which was published in 2016, I, um, it got nominated out of the blue as um, was a, one of the 10 candidates to be Book of the Year in oh, wow. Military History Matters, which is the leading military history publication. Yeah. Um, and, and if I was to win it, I then get to do a keynote speech in the current archaeology uh, annual conference and have a book signing. Uh, wow. And out of the blue, completely out of the blue, it won. Completely out, out, out of the blue. I got a phone call from the editor in the B&Q car park and uh, told me. So I can remember jumping up and down, literally squealing, thinking, oh, oh my God, I made it. Yeah. And I did get to do the lecture at the current Archaeology Awards for about 800 people. And I did get to do the book signing with the first book. So it, it was probably that. And the, the other one I would throw in for your readers, if, if you guys or your readers or get a or listeners get a chance to publish their own work, it's amazing to be on websites like Amazon or Waterstones or all the other websites you can look at. When the, um, when the book goes live at midnight on the day yeah. it gets published, and that is just absolutely astonishing. Aww. 
See, hard work yeah. pays off. That's what yeah. that. Well deserved, Simon. Always yeah, absolutely. Hard work always pays off if you're doing something that you love. Couldn't agree exactly. more. God, what an inspiring note to finish on there. Yeah, really Believe is. and work hard, you can achieve your dreams. Yeah. I mean, we'll be having you back. Yes, 100%. You can talk about anything to do with history, don't worry. Or we love that. Or get Hector on. There you go. Yeah, we can get yes, Hector. I can bring Hector. Zach. We can oh, do oh, like, oh. a history dog swan, maybe. Great idea. <laughs> I've got I a love hamster. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> Poppy the hamster can get involved as well. Oh. <laughs> that count. We'll oh, amazing. <laughs> thank you so much for speaking to us today, Simon. This has been absolutely fantastic. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Simon Elliott talking about his new book, Romans at War. Now, as it's the festive period, me and Phoebe will be drinking too much mulled wine to do any podcasts. So we'll be returning on January the 5th with a special roundtable episode. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet and get in touch with us through our Twitter account at Karki Malarkey. Until next time, I'm Phoebe Style. And I'm Olivia Smith. This is Karki Malarkey signing off. And Merry, Merry Christmas! Christmas.